Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Eyes on Earth. Our podcast focuses on our ever-changing planet and on the people here at Eros and across the globe who use remote sensing to monitor and study the health of our planet. I'm your host, Steve Young. Today's guests are Bruce Wiley and Neil Pastic. Bruce is a U.S. Geological Survey scientist based at Eros who has traveled to Alaska annually for a decade to study the state of near-surface permafrost in that part of the world. And his colleague, Neil, a physical scientist with KBR and a contractor of the USGS, has participated with Bruce on that fieldwork as well. Alaskan permafrost contains vast amounts of carbon and inorganic matter. Plants that took carbon dioxide from the atmosphere centuries ago died and froze before they could completely decompose. Worldwide, permafrost is thought to contain about twice as much carbon as is currently in the atmosphere. Bruce and Neil have mapped the extent of that near-surface permafrost in Alaska and looked at what's happening to it as the Arctic warms at a rate that scientists say is twice as fast as other parts of the planet. Welcome. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve, for the opportunity to be on the show. Bruce, tell us what near-surface permafrost is, how far in the ground it goes. Uh, permafrost, by definition, is ground that's been below freezing for at least two consecutive years. And we define near-surface permafrost if the top of that permafrost is within one meter of the surface. Google it, you'll see that there's up to 2,000 feet below the surface of the ground up up on the north slope of Alaska. But generally, we would see, I'd say, 30, 40 meters for where our studies were. We were seeing areas that looked like it may go down 200, 300 meters in certain areas, but we don't know. We've got to get a drill rig into the middle of nowhere, and it's very expensive to do that. You do field work to kind of gauge the depth of permafrost and near-surface permafrost. Neil, tell us a little bit about that. We typically conduct field work in Alaska during late August or September, not only because the mosquito populations have begun to dwindle, and it's really the nicest time of year, but also mainly because the seasonally frozen ground is fully thawed. So what we're really after is quantifying the depth to which the top of the permafrost is at, or perennial frozen ground. So when we head out to the field, we typically lay out a transect at a scale that's equivalent to those remote sensing inputs that we're using. And along this transect, we'll take a metal tile probe, um, really scientific, to quantify the depth to the top of the firm frost. And, and this it just involves inserting a metal rod into the ground until there's some refusal. And when we hit the top of the firm frost, there's a thud. So a really scientific method to do it, but it's a tried and tested and proved method that a lot of scientists have used in the past. And tell us how you can map permafrost from remote sensing platforms. I mean, how do those kinds of things tell us where the permafrost is and how deep it is? Yeah, so what we'll do is take those field observations then and intersect it with our remote sensing data or other geospatial data with factors known to reflect or um, explain the distribution of permafrost. So like historical climate data is something we'll feed into these models, uh, vegetation maps, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, once we have this database, we use computer algorithms or machine learning algorithms to upscale those observations using those relationships across the larger landscape. Bruce, have your studies been finding that permafrost is disappearing? Our studies initially were primarily focused on making the best darn permafrost map that we could. And so we did that, mapped it at 30 meters for the whole state of Alaska. 
But there are other people that have more long-term sites looking at if the permafrost is degrading. And many of those look at the temperature of the permafrost. And those studies show that the permafrost is indeed warming and approaching a melting point in many places. But we can repeat this on all of our survey lines across Alaska. Neil, what is the significance of that loss? The significance, well, permafrost is the foundation for which most everything is built on in the Arctic, right? So imagine your house and removing the infrastructure underneath your house, everything would collapse. So in ice-rich soils or permafrost that is ice-rich and high ice-rich content, once that thaws, the ground surface can collapse, causing damage to infrastructure, homes, and complete reorganization of vegetation communities on the surface. Bruce, what happens when permafrost changes? Well, a lot of the permafrost, particularly if it's near-surface permafrost, has a pretty direct impact on the plants. So if you have permafrost, it's almost like having bedrock at about less than a foot sometimes. And so guess what? You have a perched water table, right? It's going to hold that water right near the surface. And the black spruce trees that dominate this boreal system are shallow-rooted. If you lean on one, you can almost push it over. And it's a 300-year-old tree that's as big around as a broomstick. But they've got very shallow roots. And you've got moss. It's like walking on, you know, 20 down comforters stacked on top of each other. It's just squishy, mossy stuff. And so that kind of system would be in jeopardy uh, with thawing permafrost. The active layer or that maximum thaw depth would get much deeper and it would facilitate more water seeping into the soil and more lateral movements of the water through the soil and maybe even facilitate water movement down into the aquifer. Studies have shown that that would tend to make a drier system uh, which may be more vulnerable to fire. We have heard that um, there is a lot of carbon that's, quote, unquote, in the freezer that is permafrost. What happens to that carbon when the permafrost is no longer there, and how significant is its escape if it escapes? That's a really good point, right? Uh, so once permafrost thaws, this pre previously frozen organic matter can start to decompose and be released to the atmosphere in the form of carbon dioxide and methane, really depending on the soil respiration that takes place. This microbial decomposition and subsequent release of greenhouse ga gases to the atmosphere can actually um, accelerate climate warming, which in turn results in more permafrost degradation, which is creating a positive feedback loop, which can impact societies in and outside of permafrost-affected areas. One of our researchers is Mark Waldrop at Menlo Park. And he actually looks at microbes with DNA of the soil to see what kind of microbes there are. One of his papers, he found that the microbes that are in the permafrost, when they thaw, they're ready to go and they land running. And so they start decomposing that stuff as quick as it can. When you freeze something, you kind of break the cellular structure because the freezing of the cellular water cytoplasm will expand. So... When it thaws, things tend to decompose quite quickly. What's going to happen to it? The carbon in the permafrost will decompose. Whether it decomposes in the presence of oxygen or not in the presence of oxygen, 
not impressive oxygen might be under a wetland or or in a really wet situation. Uh, so it, it, without oxygen, you'll get methane, and that's five times as potent of a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. If it decomposes with oxygen, you get carbon dioxide, which is a major uh, greenhouse gas. You apparently, with your work and the work of your colleagues, have been able to project near-surface permafrost extent into the future. How do you do that, and how do you know, unless time goes by, that your projections are accurate? You know, I talked about our first objective was to make the most accurate map that we could of permafrost. And to do that, we had lots of observations uh, around Alaska at different different years and different times and stuff. Um, and then we used that regression tree model with spatial inputs. One of those spatial, several of those spatial inputs were future, were, were current climate, current precipitation, current temperatures. So we had already had a model developed that used climate as an input. All we did was then make a map with that model, but this time instead of putting current climate, we put a future climate or future climate scenarios and then just made a map of it. The weakness of this approach is we assume that the land cover is is constant, right? We didn't change the land cover. We didn't change anything like that. So if the fire frequency is going to increase in the future, ours didn't capture that. So ours was just isolating the effects of a change in climate on permafrost. Who's likely to use that kind of information, you know? The process-based modelers that do the future climate projections will have a much better spatial representation of where permafrost is and where it isn't than what they had before. Is there an implication for the rest of the planet if the Arctic and Alaska are losing their permafrost, if it's degrading, if there are more fires? I mean, have those connections been made or not? The high amount of carbon stocks in these high latitude systems is quite impressive. If you look at the UNEP map of, of soil stocks, you'll see that the Arctic even has higher carbon stocks than the tropical forest. There's there's one area I saw, Indonesia, that may have a little higher carbon stocks than the Arctic. But the Arctic has a very large land mass. It's all of Siberia, Alaska. It's just huge. So the potential amount of carbon that could be released uh, in Alaska is significant. Neil, how do you mitigate against permafrost thaw? So when you're building these different infrastructures, you can put in self-leveling systems as well as have these, like they've done in the pipeline, is have these cooling pipes that are planted into the ground that keeps the ground uh, frozen, even as air temperatures increase. So those are a couple of different ways that you can mitigate uh, permafrost thaw at the, at the engineering level. You've obviously been up in Alaska. You've done field work. Um, do you ever encounter wildlife up there? Yeah, any stories to tell? I mean, how do you? What do you do when you come across a grizzly bear or something else? <laughs> yeah, we've had black bears come into camp and uh, shot them with a beanbag round to scare them off. But the most interesting one, I think, for your audience might be: we were floating down a river called the Hula Hula in the North Slope of Alaska, and we were headed for the. Arctic Ocean, and we're going to be met there by a boat to come pick us up. 
and we were halfway five days into a 10-day trip and we were sitting around a willow fire there's no trees there and neil looked up and he said oh there's a bear on the other side of the river of course every bear up there is a grizzly and then he said oh and there's another one another one my shotgun was a meter a yard away and i grabbed that and then i stepped in front of the group i didn't want anybody in front of me and Two of the bears ran off and one charged down the ridge straight at us. Oh, it was beautiful. Just in awe. And then all of a sudden, oh, no, he's coming for me. <laughs> but you, they taught us, you know, you set your defensive perimeter, you know, 15, 20 yards. If they get within that, you're going to unload. The willows on the other side of the, of the river was, was my perimeter. I was going to start shooting. And fortunately, the bear turned around halfway down. It was a bluff charge. Uh, and uh, and did it get your blood pumping or not? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's lots of stories. I could tell many more. Well, we've been talking to Bruce Wiley, a USGS scientist at Eros, and his colleague Neil Pastic, a physical scientist and contractor to the USGS. The two of them have done years of study on permafrost levels in Alaska and how they are changing as the Arctic warms. We hope you come back for the next episode of Eyes on Earth. This podcast is a product of the U.S. Geological Survey Department of the Interior. Thanks for joining us.